In other words, all you have to do is desire it. Our time together today is really an exploration of this theme, an unpacking of this theme. What does it mean to be a saint? And for us, perhaps, maybe a personal question is, do we want to desire to be the saints God is calling us to be? Or as Merton might put it later in life, the saints that God has already made us. In a way, that's very Pauline, isn't it? The letters of St. Paul, he's always reminding Christians that we are saints. God has called us to this way of life. And Lax's question is a good one. Do you desire it? Do you want it? So how we're going to unpack it is this. This is my intention for the day. Um, we'll see how well we, we go through this. Um, and I'm going to look to Kate to keep me on time. I, I think we're going to go to about noon and then have a short break and then go to about one and have a longer break for lunch and come back for one more session, at which point I'm sure you will promptly fall asleep in that post-lunch afternoon time. Um, and then we will have some time for discussion, larger group discussion and questions. Um, so. I keep trying to think about, and as I was anticipating the day, how do I want to break it down? Should I be very strict about the three times that I have to speak? And then I thought, I'd rather organize my thoughts thematically, and we'll go until the time, and then just pick up where we leave off. And hopefully, we'll get through everything. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. So what I'd like to do first is to talk about what does it mean to be a saint, and the communion of saints more broadly. Because this term is, as I was just speaking with some folks beforehand, uh, somebody mentioned, you know, saints, the church's view of them is rather dubious, and I think that's a good way to put it, um, both in the process of identifying who is a saint and what sanctity means, um, but more importantly, this tenet of Christianity that's part of our creed, the communion of saints. In order for us to talk about holiness, to talk about sanctity, to talk about where we fit into the picture, we need to revisit this key tenet of Christian faith. But I think it's a deeply misunderstood aspect of our faith. So I want to look at the history and challenges and hopes of what it means to talk about the communion of saints. Then uh, I'd like us to switch gears, and I'm going to talk to you a bit about Thomas Merton and his understanding of sanctity and the universal call to holiness that we all have. From there, we'll move, as Patricia uh, rightly invited us to think about, to the notion of rejoicing and being glad. Whoa, sorry about that. Maybe that was a divine uh, reminder of the audacity of the claim, or the urgency of the age. And that's to look at Pope Francis's document from last, is it right? Yeah, last April, 2018. My goodness. It came out, believe it or not, uh, this is going to be another plug for the Merton Society of Great Britain, that it was the morning after we finished our last conference. And so I remember downloading the document from the Vatican website and immediately boarding an airplane back to the States. And so I read it for the first time flying back home. Um, you know, air travel is not always the most comfortable. It's certainly not the most ecologically friendly. But it can, believe it or not, be rather meditative when you're there with that white noise of the engines and you're 40,000 feet above the ground and there's nothing you can do but read and think and sleep and pray. And so uh, I spent a lot of time with it there. And it's just bringing me back uh, to that moment being here today. And then finally, um, for us to think about, in light of the insights of Thomas Merton and Pope Francis, and the recovery of this notion of the communion of saints, what does it mean for us to be saints, the saints that we are? 
And what does it mean for us to become friends of God and prophets? And I'll explain as we go what I mean by that. Does that sound good to everybody? It doesn't matter. We're going to do it anyway. <laughs> but I always like to ask. Yeah. It, gives a, it gives a sense of agency, even if there isn't any. Right? So let's begin first with the communion of saints and to unpack what this doctrine, what this element of our faith tradition, um, those of us who identify as Christian, what does that actually mean? Do you love my little St. Francis's? <laughs> Part of uh, the reason I love this image is because it suggests, as by way of anticipation, the false notion of sanctity, that there's a one-size-fits-all model, and that we all need to just be little replicas, St. Clair or St. Francis of Assisi or St. Benedict or St. Scholastica or St. Catherine of Siena. You pick your saint, Mother Teresa, and that we just need to replicate that. And this is nonsense but it's very you know, common nonsense. I'd like to begin first by um, taking a look at uh, the work of Professor Elizabeth Johnson. Are folks here familiar with her? Um, she's a sister of St. Joseph, a professor emerita at Fordham University in New York State in, in, in the US. And she wrote a book um, in the late 90s that's really extraordinary, it's very good, called Friends of God and Prophets, and it's a feminist analysis of the communion of saints. And what she does is go back over this 2,000-year history of Christianity and looks at the development of sanctity, of holiness, and the doctrine of communion of saints. And she says that there's been sort of a historical ebbing and flowing of its meaning. And what she wants to do is restore the kind of original sense of what the communion of saints is really all about back to the earliest scriptural foundation for this doctrine um, and to the early centuries of Christianity as the understood what this meant. What she says is that there's been, particularly in the Middle Ages, so if we think about 900, 1000, the 1200s into the early Renaissance, there was a major shift in our understanding of the communion of saints, and it basically hasn't changed since then. I sort of feel like this is a common theme in Christianity. Right? We get to about the 13th century, and then somewhere along the way, everybody decided, well, that's the end of that. We don't need to change. And so for about 800, 900 years, uh, both, I would say, the Church of England and the Roman tradition has kept a lot of the same things the same. Um, and, and that is somewhat problematic. And, and the communion of saints is one example of that. What results is a kind of what we might call a classical interpretation, a classic interpretation that imagines the communion of saints as a social system of patronage, Professor Johnson says. Now this is the way I think most women and men, even those who do not practice their Christian faith tradition overtly, if you were to stop somebody out on Oxford Street, right, or you're going to plant yourself over in Regent's Park and just sit on a bench and randomly poll people as they're going by, what do they think the communion of saints means, if they know of it at all, and what does a saint do, how does one become a saint, and so forth, this sort of system is what would likely be in their mind. In other words, saints are our ambassadors. There are middle women and middle men between us and the divine. It is, by and large, conceived of in a hierarchical structure. So if we think about uh, 
kind of the universe as being ordered or structured this way. God is at the top. We are at the bottom, and there are a lot of us, and it truly is a pyramidal sort of setup. And in the middle, kind of underneath God, there are a group of these very special people we call saints with a capital S, and they have special uh, access to God, access we don't have. Now, first and foremost, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense according to the Christian tradition, if we take the tradition seriously, right? God is close to and draws near to all of us. That goes all the way back to the moment of our creation. So if we recall, for instance, the opening lines of the book of Genesis, right, chapter 1, when God creates the universe, what does God do? The first thing is what? By the way, I can see you. You can respond if you'd like. I, I, I want to make sure, this is my way of making sure we're all awake for <laughs> God breathes, exactly, thank you. The Hebrew, right, is the Ruach Elohim, the breath or spirit of God, draws near to the chaos, to the uh, disorder, to the lack of meaning. In Hebrew, right, tohu vabohu, I love that word so much, right? This, I, this unordered reality. And the thing that brings order and meaning and future and hope is the very breath of God, the spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim. Um, it's a symbol in the Hebrew Bible of divine imminence, of God who draws near to us. And we see that play out again in the second creation account or narrative in Genesis 2. How does God create in that narrative? Right? God plays in the dirt. God plays in the ground. God makes humanity, ha-adama, from the earth. And God makes all creatures ha-adama from the earth. And how is this earthling or earthlings, how are they given life? Again, this breath of God, the same Ruach Elohim. It's a God who draws near to us, a God who is so close to us, as St. Augustine famously reflected, that God is nearer to us than we are to ourselves. So if that's how Scripture begins to think about God drawing near to us and how we all have access, all of us, all human beings, all women and men, have an immediate relationship to our creator because it's God's very breath that animates us, that gives us life, then this hierarchical structure seems a bit odd, right? We have an immediacy to our creator. But that gets lost when we start to project a kind of social understanding or civil understanding or kind of human ordering of society onto the divine. And what Professor Johnson highlights is that this starts shifting our understanding of what holiness means and sanctity and how we relate to God and who has access to God. It becomes restricted. It becomes clerical. It becomes very male, first and foremost. I mean M-A-L-E, not M-A-I-L, right? Although there could be some confusion about letter writing and who's contacting God. Right? So in this setup, most people would think, or at least over time it became standard, that God is envisioned as a monarch, as some kind of single ruler, usually a king. Although you might imagine God as a queen. In both cases, it's problematic because God is viewed as one who has this absolute sovereignty, who's inaccessible, just like the average person in a feudal context would not have access to the king or queen, to the monarch. And therefore, God is 
more and more conceived of as generally unapproachable. Right? The sense of God's closeness or proximity to us falls away, is lost in time. And because God is unapproachable, if we need something, if we need divine assurance, or if we need inspiration, if we need some kind of material support or some kind of kind of uh, recognition of our circumstances, if we need to complain or express a lament like we see throughout the Psalms and wisdom literature, if we need any kind of access to the divine, we need to have an intermediary. We need our patrons. And so what seems to happen is more and more the community of saints takes on not a notion of all of God's people, all of creation and harmony or relationship in communication with the divine, in proximity to the divine, but rather there are a handful of people who are our special patrons that could intervene for us, who can connect to God. Does that make sense? Does that seem commonplace? Even today, that tends to be um, more or less the, the vision. I, I think of my own Franciscan tradition, for instance, right? I don't know if this is your experience. Certain Anthony of Padua, have you heard of him before? Yeah. What is he best known for? <laughs> finding things, yeah. Finding things that we lost, right? Usually there's a little rhyming prayer, St. Anthony, St. Anthony, look around. Something is lost and cannot be found. I don't know about you, but as Halloween approaches, that sounds like magical thinking, doesn't it? Yeah. St. Anthony, you know, patron of witches or something like that, you know. Toil, toil. You know, it's like Shakespearean right there, right? But the problem is... Well, a couplefold. One, the presumption is that we need to have Anthony intercede for us because if we need something as mundane as finding a parking space for the car or our lost keys or something like that, um, we can't just somehow communicate to God for assistance. We need Anthony's help. But for me, as a Franciscan and as a Franciscan theologian, I have double frustration with that prayer and vision of St. Anthony in this patronage system which is that Anthony of Padua was the first theologian and first theology professor of the Franciscan order. So he was a doctor of theology. One of the 30 texts that we have that are original to St. Francis in his own writings, right, that, that we can trace back to him with confidence, is a short letter he wrote to Anthony of Padua that said, it pleases me that you should teach the brothers sacred theology. And so he has his first sort of assignment letter from St. Saint, from Saint Francis there's nothing in there about, it pleases me that you should find all the brothers' lost items. You know, they're missing habits and keys and so forth, right? So uh, next time you pray to St. Anthony, maybe pray for some you know, appreciation for understanding a complicated theological idea or some help with one's scriptural reflection or something like that. And you can ask for help with your keys. But I think that's a great illustration of how saints over time have become reduced to intermediaries and patrons. Now, on the one hand, a patronage system isn't terribly bad altogether. I think it's good. And you know, one thing I, I've often appreciated about the, the UK system is that you have, in many charitable organizations, you know, honorary patrons, people who are supporters, who are endorsers of communities and institutions and, and uh, you know, organizations that do good work. And so I think there's a way that we can think of Anthony of Padua as a patron for people who are lost or are losing things. That's not a terrible idea. Or St. Francis of Assisi, 
oftentimes viewed as the patron of ecology, of care for creation. Well, certainly that's a great thing. But when we reduce saints to, to those kind of in-between intermediaries, something is lost. What is lost was picked up by or maybe recovered by those uh, reformers, people like Martin Luther, um, to a lesser extent Calvin, and then the radical reformers that follow them. And one of the things that, that Luther famously raises this question about is, where does this notion of sainthood, sanctity, saints, having to do with patronage or intercession, where does that come from? Because he famously says what? The primary source for theology is scripture, right? Sola scriptura. He wants to do away with this accretion of various traditions into what the Catholic community would call tradition with a capital T. And so he goes back looking through scripture and says, this is not what Paul's talking about when he talks about saints. He's not talking about go-betweens, you know, people who are just there to help us out because God uh, is inaccessible, God is unrelatable. In fact, no, when we go back to the theological tradition of the early centuries, when we go back to the scriptural model of what it means to be a saint, what we see is it's the community of believers, all the baptized are saints, right? One of the things I often think about, um, it drives me mad, I'll just be honest with you about it, just very straightforward, that at least in the Roman calendar, we have two days, and we're coming upon them, right, the beginning of November. We have two days, one of which is called All Saints, right? And of course, this year, All Hallows' Eve is stressful for lots of reasons in this area. So. Um, and, but we have All Saints the following day, and then the day after that, we have this odd feast called All Souls, right? Have you ever thought about why do we have two separate days? Now, for me, I think there's good news and bad news with these two feast days on our liturgical calendar. The good news is there are so many members of the communion of saints that we can't contain them all on one day, right? It would be a disservice to have one holiday for just, you know, for everybody. But I think the bad news is that we separate the two as if saints with a capital S are of one sort and everybody else falls into the second category. I like to think of them as one feast day in two parts. And it really should be the Feast of All Saints Part 1 and the Feast of All Saints Part 2. Right? Because what Luther points out, and he's right, he points to St. Paul especially, says that all the baptized are saints. To be a saint is to be part of the community of the faithful, to be a baptized member. And so this idea, first and foremost, that there are an exclusive group of people called saints and then there are these other souls is misleading. The communion of saints means that we're bound together, united to one another in our baptism through the Holy Spirit. Lumen Gentium, I'll talk more about this uh, later today. Lumen Gentium is the document from the Second Vatican Council on uh, the Church. It's a dogmatic constitution on the Church. And in it, in paragraph uh, 13, there's this beautiful line about all of the baptized scattered throughout the world where they may be. Are you, united to, are you united to one another in the Holy Spirit? And in the, in the new, well, it's, 
I don't know how to, the new translation of the Roman Missal, the Eucharistic prayer number three has a similar line in there that all are scattered throughout the world but are united in, in the Holy Spirit. That is a recovery of what Luther was finding in sacred scripture in the writings of Paul. So when we talk about the communion of saints, first and foremost, we should be talking about everybody who's baptized, everybody who's gone before us, everybody who exists now scattered throughout the world, though we may be, and everybody who's yet to come. That's the beautiful thing about the divine, is that when we think about God, creator, God is outside of time, our experience of time. And therefore, the communion of saints is really an affirmation of the fact that we, as as members of the faithful, as God's beloved, as sons and daughters of God, right, through Christ, are united to one another in a very real way. So real, in fact, that it's not limited by our earthly existence, not prohibited by even death, right? Paul has that great line, oh, death, where's thy sting? You know, it's powerful. So this idea um, in, in the 16th century of a retrieval of the scriptural understanding of the communion of saints um, has, has really, you know, it, it plowed along. Sadly, in the Roman tradition, there was a very uh, reactive and, to some extent, reactionary move in the 16th century. I often think of um, what happened in the two reformations as ships passing one another. It, it took you know, the Lutheran Federation and the Roman Church about 450 years plus to, to finally start talking to each other in an honest, direct way. Um, so there was a lot lost, particularly in the Roman tradition. But it was always there. And that's one of the things we see recovered in Thomas Merton's outlook and certainly in Pope Francis's writings today. Uh, moving forward, too, to think about some of the, the great work of, of Elizabeth Johnson is that when we go back to scripture, you're exactly right. In Hebrew, it's chokmah, the wisdom, or Sophia in Greek, right? Exactly. But in the early uh, Christian tradition, particularly in the Eastern Christian communities, the Orthodox tradition and so forth today, the idea of Sophia wisdom was actually tied to Christ. There's a kind of a feminine understanding of Christ. As a, in other words, you don't need Mary to fulfill the femininity of God, as it were, or the feminine dimension of God. And, and it's a bit, I, I, first of all, I, I, I have to say two things. One, please, as, as these two gentlemen have, feel free to raise questions as we go. But I may have to do what I'm about to do right now because I would love to talk for the next four hours just about this. But I, what I'd like to do as well is, if, if that's the case, make a recommendation. And there's, um, there's a great poem by Thomas Merton called Hagia Sophia. And, and in there, he really unpacks this kind of the, the feminine side of the divine, the feminine image of Christ. Um, and there's some great work by uh, Christopher Premuk, um, a Merton scholar, uh, on Sophia, the Hidden Wisdom of Christ and Thomas Merton. The book is titled Sophia. And, um, and he's one of, this is, you know, uh, providential. He's one of the keynote speakers at the Merton Conference in Oakham in the spring. So... Uh, I just keep plugging that away. I promise. There's no, no hidden agenda. I'm not being paid to do that. Um, but but I, I, it is interesting how both of you, you're exactly right, how Mary has played you know, such a role and, and, and an important role, and she has an important role in history and an important role um, in, our, you know, in our understanding of ourselves and the communion of saints. The problem is when we take, whether it's her or Anthony of Padua or pick your, your saint, and we 
push, you know, access to God, exclusive, exclusive access to God onto them in a way that basically does what we do in the liturgical calendar, separates November 1st from November 2nd, that there, is, there are the saints and there are the rest of us. And so what, what is worthwhile is bringing these things together. I want to share, you know, Dorothy Day famously uh, says she, that she doesn't want to be called a saint. What's that? It is, yeah. She says, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed that easily. And, and I think she, just in the way that Dorothy Day always can with, with her writings, go right to the heart. No dancing around the subject. And, and it's brilliant precisely because it's true that on the one hand, when we say we venerate the saints, we admire the saints, we appreciate the saints, that is perfectly fine and I believe an authentic position, but it has a shadow side. The more we venerate the saints and put them up on pedestals, the more we let ourselves off the hook, potentially. I'll give you an example. I'm a Franciscan, as, is, as I've shared, as you know, and so there's, there's a way in which I could say about Francis of Assisi or Claire of Assisi, for example, that they're so holy and I admire them so much and, and, and obviously inspired by their way of life so much that I've joined this Franciscan community and you know, I, I think about and study and read their writings and their inspiration. And you know, oh, their embrace of evangelical poverty, their care for all of creation, their love and support for the poor and for other people, and for et cetera, et cetera. It could go on and on with such great, you know, um, appreciation and admiration. But then, when I'm inquiring among myself and among those in my community about what God is calling us to, I might find myself saying, "Well, I can't do what they did." because I'm just me. God gave Claire, God gave Francis, God gave Mary, God gave St. Peter, fill in the blank, whoever you want, such special graces and power and insight and wisdom to accomplish these amazing things. And so what ends up happening is we simultaneously hold up these individuals on the pedestal. We dismiss them as not having any relevance to us. And we also let ourselves off the hook because, like you had mentioned about Mary, she's just one of the all souls like the rest of us. That actually becomes very, very striking, that the things that Francis of Assisi did, or Anthony of Padua, or Claire of Assisi, or Catherine of Siena, or Teresa of Avila, or Teresa of Calcutta, let's go into our own lifetime, people rightly admire her for all the stuff that she's done in India and worldwide. But then we say, well, I couldn't do what Mother Teresa did. And the follow-up question is, why not? She didn't have any special powers, anything different than you and I have. She had the same gospel, right? She had the same call from Christ. She has the same opportunities and freedom and free will that we all have. So Dorothy Day, I think, really, you know, really gets at it. Excuse me. Thomas Merton, in his book, New Seeds of Contemplation, says something very, very similar. It's interesting. He and Dorothy Day were very good friends. They were correspondents. And Merton writes, the saints love their sanctity, not because it separates them from the rest of us and places them above us, but because, on the contrary, it brings them closer to us 
and in a sense places them below us. I think, you know, there's a certain irony in Dorothy Day being remembered for having said, don't call me a saint, and the fact that her cause for canonization is moving along rather rapidly right now. <laughs> but I think it's, you know, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. She can be canonized, you know, recognized as a model of inspiration and wisdom for the universal church, and still also be somebody who challenges us to do exactly what she's done. But in this spirit, I want to go back to something that Professor Johnson points out. You know, Dorothy Day recognizes here, I believe, that the term saint itself has been, if not corrupted, has become misused and misunderstood, right? As these people on pedestals who are like superhuman, who are other than us, different from us in some radical way. And so Beth Johnson says, are there other resources in the tradition are there other scriptural resources for us to think about holiness and sanctity in ways that don't create stumbling blocks like the notion of saints do in the popular understanding? And so she points to the Book of Wisdom. And she points to this passage in chapter 7. Referring to wisdom, we were just speaking about this a moment ago, Sophia Hokma in Hebrew. Although she is but one, wisdom. She can do all things. And while remaining herself, she renews all things. In every generation, she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. Let's just unpack that a little bit for a minute. The she here, of course, is wisdom. In, in, in Greek, Sophia. In Hebrew, Chokmah. And just like that Rubach Elohim we were talking about a moment ago, Wisdom and spirit, wisdom and breath are seen as symbols of divine imminence in the Hebrew Bible. They're symbols or signs of God who draws near to creation, like we see in the creation account. And in the book of wisdom here, we see Sophia wisdom being presented um, as, a, as a divine symbol, or a symbol of divine imminence, of God who moves in and through and with all of us, brings us together renewing us and in every generation empowering us to be in relationship with God as like friends and to empower us to be prophets. What's interesting here is a couple things, I think. One is it's a call for us to rethink the notion of grace. I think most people think about grace in a, um, in a transactional way, particularly if you're a, a cradle Roman Catholic. Although, C of E folks, you're not off the hook either. <laughs> this idea that grace is something one quote-unquote gets, right? Have you been raised with this or are you familiar with it? Why go to the sacraments? Why go to mass? Why do you go to church to get grace? If you don't feel like it, why should you go? Because I need more grace. <laughs> and you think of it as a bank account, right? Um, or there's the, the Japanese... Um, cultural thing, Pokemon, do you know this? You know, these little monsters and there's television programs and this kind of stuff and a card game that kids play. And, and one of the slogans of Pokemon is, you gotta catch them all. So I often tell my students when talking about grace that most of us have a Pokemon understanding of grace. It's something we gotta catch. I mean, I gotta, gotta grab them. I gotta go to confession to get some grace and I gotta go to mass to get some grace and I better you know, be anointed so I get some grace. You know? Say some prayers so I can catch some more grace. The problem with that is 
Grace is first and foremost, both in the New Testament and in the early centuries of, of the Christian tradition and, and continuing throughout the Eastern Christian traditions, the Orthodox, grace is always and everywhere first the Holy Spirit. So grace is not something we get. It is indeed a gift of God, but the gift is the giver God's self. Grace is the gift of God as spirit to us. And as St. Augustine says, grace transforms us. Grace enlivens us. Grace, as he famously said, gratia sanens, grace heals us because it is the gift of the divine itself. I think part of what is conveyed and why this is such a great passage from the Book of Wisdom is that sense of wisdom or spirit or gift of God's self to us. And what does it do? It renews all things in every generation, always through eternity, right? Wisdom, grace, the gift of God's spirit enables and enlivens us to make us friends of God and to make us prophets. Um, let me just say a word about prophets here. What does it mean to be a prophet? I think the way we commonly talk about it, like the way we commonly think of grace as something we get, or the way we commonly think of saints as our intermediaries and go-betweens, I think a lot of people commonly think of prophets as fortune tellers, right? If somebody says something like, you know, Johnson isn't going to get the votes he needs to pass the Brexit deal today, and that pass it, you know, and that turns out to be true this afternoon, then somebody might say, oh, Haran, he was prophetic. He called this in advance. That's not really what prophet means, though. A prophet is somebody who sees the world as it actually is and sees the world as God intends it to be and can't help but notice the gap between those two realities. A prophet calls out the distance, that space between how we're actually living and treating one another and treating the world, the environment, the whole of creation, and how God has called us to a different way of living, which is why every one of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, what we Christians call the Old Testament, are constantly calling out and calling people back to the covenant. The covenant is about right relationship. The covenant is about God's invitation to living rightly. And so prophets are ones who say, hey, those of you who are benefiting from this unjust status quo, stop it, right? Change. We don't have to live this way. There's another way to be. The other thing about prophets that's really interesting is that nobody wants to be one. There's not a single enthusiastic prophet in the whole Bible. The one exception, I've been thinking about this for a few years. I think John the Baptist, we have a question mark. We don't know much about him. Right? In the gospel accounts, he kind of shows up on the scene, kind of, you know, it's one of those things like in a play, the, the note would be, meanwhile, you know, he's doing his thing. We don't know anything about how he began. He was a baby, and then he's baptizing people at the Jordan, right? But every other prophet fights tooth and nail God's call to be a prophet, right? Why? Because it's incredibly risky. It's incredibly dangerous. It's very challenging. A lot of them acknowledge, you know, especially if you look through the minor prophets like Amos, for instance, or Habakkuk, you see that, well, Habakkuk's a bad example. I think he was a court prophet, but Amos is a great example. Amos, 
uh, is somebody who was just a, far a farmer. He was a, a dresser of sycamore trees, right? He, was, he had an orchard. He was somebody who was an ordinary person. And God calls him to this task. And he says, I, I don't know anything about this. I'm not a professional. I'm not, today we might say, you know, I don't have a master's degree in theology or divinity. I can't do anything like that. And God says, I will take care of you. I will tell you what you need to say. Right? Grace, wisdom. Um, one of my favorite prophets is Jeremiah. I don't know if there are any other fans of Jeremiah here. Jeremiah, in the very beginning, is called by God famously. And Jeremiah says, oh, thank you. Um, this is my rough translation from the Hebrew. <laughs> Jeremiah goes, well, you know, I appreciate the honor. Thank you for calling me. But I think you've got the wrong person. I think you should find some other, some other person to do this because I'm too young. That's one of the reasons I like him, because I'm getting less young as time goes on. But for a long time as a young religious you know, people were always like impressed by being young. And I'm like, well, I have no control over that. But Jeremiah says, you know, I'm too young. I don't speak well. I'm not good at this. You should find somebody else. And then God says, as you might recall, this is my translation again, paraphrasing here. God says, shut up. You think you know better than me? I'm God. And then there's this brilliant line that follows where God says to Jeremiah, I will put my words into your mouth. I will inspire you. Trust me. You know, there's that line then where God says, before you were born when you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. I called you to this. Trust me. And then 20 chapters later, we have that other famous line in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah has been trusting God. Jeremiah has been inspired, right? Renewed by the Spirit, by God drawing near to him. He's been proclaiming God's word, pointing out the injustices, calling those in power to account, calling the people back to the covenant. And what happens? They love him, right? They have parades and they sell him. No, of course not. They're trying to kill him. His friends have abandoned him. They're running him out of town. He's, at, he's hiding out in chapter 20. And he says to God, he's lamenting to God, and he says, I know how I can escape this. If I just shut my mouth if I just stay quiet. But he, you know, in this kind of soliloquy says, but your words, O Lord, are like a fire within me, and I can't keep silent. What are those words within him? What is that inspiration? It is Sophia Hokma wisdom. It's God's gift of self. And so what we see in the Book of Wisdom is Friends of God means we have an intimate, close relationship with God, independent of anybody else. God draws near to us from our very beginning and throughout our entire lives and into the next life, whatever that may consist of. And we are, by receiving that gift of God's self, the gift of God's spirit, grace, we are called to be prophets in this world. Now, back to Dorothy Day, we want to say only a few people fit into this category, and we're going to call them saints, and we're going to put them on a pedestal, because we, like all those prophets, don't want the enormous risk. We don't want the challenge. We don't want the threat. We don't want to upset anybody. We don't want to lose friends. We don't want to be run out of town. We don't want to be talked about ill on the social media, right? We don't want to do any of those things. So, like Jeremiah, we want to keep our mouths quiet. We want to admire from a distance 
the capital S saints, and we want to ask them to approach God to help us out when we're in trouble. Seems like a pretty nice, comfortable, easy deal. And I think that's the way that most people, most people think about sanctity, the community of saints and themselves. So if we look at um, the grounding in the tradition that this notion of friends of God and prophets, if saint seems too audacious, too extreme for us, then maybe we follow the book of wisdom and take Beth Johnson's recommendation to heart that we should desire to be, as Bob Lax told Merton, saints or friends of God and prophets. And using that language, we see a couple key elements here. One is that the whole community of the faithful receives the Holy Spirit baptism. Nobody, nobody is outside of or incapable in of a relationship with God. Right? Nobody. I take Augustine at his word. You know, God is the one who is closer to us than we are to ourselves. That's something that appears over and over again in Vatican II. It becomes really important. You know, one more thing about the Holy Spirit, if I may get back to my soapbox, you know. I, I've said this in other venues, um, and so I apologize if you've heard me say this before or read something I've written about this, but I truly believe that most, most people, most self-identified Christians, most self-identified believers are, in fact, Holy Spirit atheists. They believe in God Creator, God the Father, God Mother, right? They believe in Jesus Christ. That one's, Jesus is probably the easiest, right? Because you have this historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. That's indisputable. But then the Holy Spirit. Ah, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we say we believe. We make the sign of the cross. We, in our doxology, throw the Holy Spirit at the end. In the creed, we might even say we believe in the Holy Spirit. But very few people, including religious leaders, including ministers in the church, including faithful Christians, act like they believe in the Holy Spirit. Most people act like everything's up to them. Just reading in The Guardian this morning that the Archbishop of Canterbury, Welby, uh, mentioned that he has been in, in treatment for depression and has been very public about the fact he's solicited this help and counseling and medication. And to me, that is so inspiring for several reasons. One is it helps address the stigma of mental health, right, where a lot of people view mental health as something not to be talked about, um, struggles with that not to be acknowledged. But it also shows that you know, people in positions of tremendous power and authority, especially religious leaders like the Archbishop of Canterbury, is human like everybody else, and that it's not all up to him. It's up to God. You know the expression, let go and let God? Well, maybe if we recognize the Holy Spirit drawing near to us and to all people, right? As the Book of Wisdom says, renewing all things, making us friends of God and prophets, uniting us to one another, then maybe we wouldn't be so burdened at times with thinking it's all up to us. The second thing is, as I've mentioned before, through baptism, we're united to one another and we become sharers in the divine nature. That's something our Eastern Christian brothers and sisters have held on to, and us in the West, both C of E and Romans, we've lost to a great extent. We've substituted this truth for that Pokemon grace, that we have to catch it and fill up our bank account of grace. Instead, 
The Holy Spirit is the one who draws near to us. Why? So that we can share in the divine life. As Irenaeus of Lyon and some early Christian theologians put it, that God became human so that we could become like God. And the way that that happens, what's called deification, right, in the Eastern tradition, or theosis, is through the Holy Spirit. We become sharers in the divine life through the gift of God's self as spirit. There's a great Greek word for this. It's, it's to become like Christ. And the Greek word is huiopoesis. I love that. It's to become like the sun. I always think of the Beatles. I'm like, you know, instead of here comes the sun, we can say, become the sun. Do, 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 do. Anyway, I'll, that's the end of my singing for the day. <laughs> yes, so, so the language of baptism is, uh, well, a couple things. One is, I see the tension. You're right. And the tension is there. It's, it's milder than it once was. But the tension is there not in the Pokemon sense. We don't need to go to baptism to fill up our bank, right? In, in some ways, I think people think of baptism, especially in the Catholic tradition, Anglo-Catholic or Roman Catholic, as first and foremost a necessity to swipe clean the original sin, right? What, why do we... Why should we baptize our infants? Because God forbid something were to happen, they need to be baptized or they're going to go to limbo or to hell. You know? And, and so the motivation there is more of a Pokemon kind of thing. Like you're saying, we need to get something. It's, it's a voucher to get into heaven. But that's not actually what baptism is primarily about. If we look at St. Paul, baptism is primarily about incorporation into the body of Christ becoming part of this new community. So this language here is really recognizing that through baptism, we're already part of a community knit together, as St. Paul would say, by, by, to Christ by the Holy Spirit. And that can't be taken away. It's, it's a once for all. Now, so that's, that's the language in what I would say, ecclesia ad intra, the language from within the church, how we, the church talks about baptism and its role. I'm going to step outside for a moment and put on my independent theologian hat for a minute. And I'm not alone in this at all. But I would say that actually it's even deeper than that. Regardless of one's confessional tradition, whether they've been baptized or not, by virtue of being human, and I would actually go a bit further. I wrote a book called All God's Creatures, A Theology of Creation, in which I make the argument that by virtue of being created, period, we're already always in relationship with God. And that's deeply scriptural. That's deeply in the tradition. And so I don't really want to get fixated on baptism as a who's in and who is out. And so I do, though, I do see the tension there. Um, but that's the language that gets used. I would say that baptism is an overt expression, an overt affirmation of that, that community, that relationship we share with one another and with God. Um, it's always about what God does, 100%. You know, it's not, and that's why actually it, it's the motivation ought not be first and foremost to for babies not to go to hell or something like that. Right? That's I'm not denying that that's part of what we say is affected in baptism, but the primary purpose of baptism is. It, you know, not about personal assent, right? Individual assent. You know, that's where some of the 
Anabaptist movements and other Christian communities will say, well, you need to be able to make the choice yourself. What good is a baby being baptized? They're, it's by proxy. They, you know, their godparents are making this choice. Their parents are making this choice. And my response to that is, well, actually, the, the Orthodox and, and Anglo and Roman Catholic traditions, the, you know, the, the profound understanding of infant incorporation into the body of Christ is, is not about assent. It's about relationship. It's about how God brings us all to one another. Everyone who's gone before, everybody scattered throughout the world today, everybody who's yet to be born, we're all united to one another in God. And so that's where I see that connection. Um, is that helpful? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. The, the notion of your definition of sacrament is perfectly in line with exactly what the church teaches today. You know, you said a visible sign of, say that one more time, of a spiritual reality, exactly. I was going to say, sometimes it's presented as a visible sign of an invisible reality, but that starts to make it sound like it's ghost hunting or something like that. But, but of a spiritual reality. The, the way that the 20th century German brilliant theologian Karl Rahner, Jesuit theologian, said is that, you know, a sacrament is a symbol in that it makes real what it represents. And so it's not something new. It's not the catching or the Pokemon thing like you're saying. The spiritual reality, it is always already there. God's gift of self to us. Sacraments make present that which is there. And so that, I think that follows well the question about baptism. If we understand sacrament in that sense, it's, it's about bringing to full cognition, bringing to full awareness what God is doing among us already. Is that, am I in line with you? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're spot on about that. Thank you. Wisdom with a capital W, grace with a big or little g, okay, uh, and Holy Spirit, we could say, are, are interchangeable. And that when we're saying one, we're talking about them all. Absolutely. And that's why I go back to this notion of Holy Spirit atheism, because if we understand grace in that Pokemon catch-em-all sense, the Holy Spirit doesn't have to be a part of that. And that comes from Thomas Aquinas, who talks about created grace versus uncreated grace. And he says uncreated grace is the Holy Spirit, but for him, that's secondary. We humans, we need that created grace, which is something God makes and makes available to us. And, and that's where we get into that. You know, the Holy Spirit falls further and further to the wayside, and our need to acquire this created grace develops. All of this, and I'm, thank you all, all these questions are very good, and I know you have a, a, a question or comment too here, um, but let me just say that I think they're all of a piece as we're seeing about how we think of saints and sanctity and holiness and where's God's role and what are we meant for. You know, it all sorts of, it's all tied together. It is all tied together, and the question of original sin is very important and how we think of that. And if we think of it as a literal reading of Genesis 3, as in there were two people, a guy named Adam and a lady named Eve, and they are the single parents of all humans, which science and history contradict, so um, already we have a problem there. But people like, in the fourth century, like St. Augustine, who was the first to really articulate a doctrine of original sin, or the, con you know, the concept of original sin is one way I like to think of it, whereas the reality of original sin Every human being that's ever existed experiences. No one needs to be told about a concept of original sin. When we find ourselves, St. Paul says, right, I know what I shouldn't do, but I do it anyways. You know, we all know what that's like. We all know what it's like to be 
the, the victims of sin, and we all know what it's like to be perpetrators of sin and to be mixed together. No, I don't know. Not in the Christian tradition. I mean, there are those that would be more of a Gnostic view of Christianity, that would view the material world as a kind of trap um, from which we need to escape. And we, we really do, we must reject that because our materiality is good. As Christians, we say God became material, right? In, in Greek, sarx, flesh, but not just human flesh, deep incarnation, you know. The, the body of Jesus of Nazareth was made up of the same carbon and nitrogen and oxygen as all of us, as all of the universe. So no, that it's good. But the question of original sin is, is bigger, as you said. It's, bi- it's bigger than, I think, the way we often think about it as a problem that needs to be solved. Because even after baptism, as St. Augustine and others say, we still suffer the consequences of original sin. We're still tempted to sin. We still experience the reality of it. So what does that mean? It means we need grace. And that's where he talks about grace as healing our will. Now the question is, does God's grace, and this isn't necessarily your question, but to bring it back maybe to some of the other observations, does, does God's grace, the gift of God's self, is that operative only in the baptized or in all human beings? And that is, that's a very important question. There are some who will want to say, only in the baptized. Some will want to say, only those who are, you know, cooperating with God, because there is free will. We can choose to reject it, or we can choose to accept it. In Latin, it's the gratia cooperans, the cooperating grace. But it's always God's act first, God's gift of self, the invitation to relationship that comes first, whether we accept it or not. So there's a lot there to unpack, but for the sake of time and for the sake of uh, a tea break, <laughs> let me just move ahead with two more points here. Because of, and this is Beth Jarrett saying, because of wisdom's generous work, right? Because of God's work in us, the grace, all are called to be holy, to be saints. The vocation of being friends of God and prophets shapes the life of everyone in the community, all of us, right? And what's important here, too, is to realize that when we talk about holiness, we're not talking about individual accomplishment. We'll come back to this after our break. But holiness in the Christian tradition and especially in the Jewish tradition, as witnessed to in the Hebrew Bible, holiness is always God's holiness in which we participate. And that's another problem with the capital S saints understanding, the common understanding is like they accomplish holiness. They are holy individually. No, 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 no. They participate in the holiness of God in a particular way. And that's in each and every time and place and season, which is why I want to point back to the great Jewish philosopher, Mystic Simone Weil. Some of you are familiar with, with her writings. You know. She was very captivated by the Christian tradition, particularly questions around baptism. Um, but she herself never sought to be baptized. She was never formally entered into, uh, in, into baptism. But she, in one of her writings, says... Today, it is not nearly enough merely to be a saint, but we must have the saintliness demanded by the present moment, a new saintliness itself without precedent. So one of the things, this is kind of our segue to the, what we'll talk about after the break with Thomas Merton um, and then with Pope Francis, is that Simone Weil, I think, is naming something very important here, that sanctity, participating in God's holiness, 
is not just enough to replicate some generic model of what a saint is, however we understand it. So it's not enough to be merely a saint. Each of us, in our own time and place and context in history, are called to this unprecedented form of sanctity, of holiness, of being a friend of God and prophet in our own age. And that will look very different for each person. So what I'd like to do now is um, switch gears and talk a bit about Thomas Merton um, and his notion of the universal call to holiness. Um, I love this image, too, by the way, of him playing the bongo drums. Um, Next week, I'm leading a a retreat for religious formators. These are women and men who are um, involved in in formation, mostly of religious orders and religious congregations. And they have a conference every two years in the United States. It brings about 200 or so folks together. And uh, this year, it's in Louisville, Kentucky. And the day before the conference begins, they have a day-long optional kind of retreat experience. And I I was very lucky to be asked to to lead this day-long experience about Thomas Merton. So about 30 folks are are going to go. um, And we're going to drive out to uh, the Abbey of Gethsemane and spend the day there. And then Brother uh, Paul Quennan, who many of you know, is going to take the group to Merton's Hermitage. So I'm very excited about that. Um, But in anticipation of leading that retreat, I'm looking over, so here's recommendation number one, a a wonderful book that came out in the 90s. It's a posthumous publication of Merton's called Seeds of Contemplation. Some of you know that already, yeah. And it's, it's uh, it's basically the transcripts of his retreat conferences to a group of the Sisters of Loretto and heads of women's religious communities that gathered in the fall and in the spring of 1967 and 68. Um, And it's especially on the topic of prophecy, on meditation, on contemplation. And and in the contemporary setting, it's really very, very, very good. But in the introduction, um, there is a a reference. The introduction is by Sister uh, Luke Mary Tobin, who was uh, the, the religious sister who was an observer at the Second Vatican Council and a friend of Thomas Merton's. And she recalled in the, in the preface to the book uh, how much Merton enjoyed taking out those bongo drums at various points when the sisters were there. And, you know, I think after the formal sessions had taken place and the retreat conferences, he'd, he'd have a little fun playing the drums. And so I, I've always appreciated this picture. <laughs> I'd like to begin, actually, with somebody else. Not, not Merton, but somebody who was inspired by Merton. And this is Father Jim Martin, the, the Jesuit. Um, some of you may know of him, an American Jesuit, an author, who uh, credits Thomas Merton with his own sort of call to religious life. Famously, he was a, uh, a businessman working for, uh, I can't remember where, GE or IBM or something like that. Was it GE? Yeah. GE and uh, read some Merton and saw a documentary about Thomas Merton on our public broadcasting uh, channel and uh, the, you know, then pursued formation in the, with the Society of Jesus. Um, in one of his books, he, he says the following. He says, the universal call to holiness is an invitation to be ourselves. The invitation to holiness is a lifelong, uh, a lifelong call to draw closer to God, who wants nothing more than to encounter us as the people we are 
and the saints we are meant to be. And I, I will just cite a passage here from Thomas Merton's New Seeds of Contemplation. And what, what Jim is referring to here is, is basically um, a summary of what, uh, you can see how, how used my book is, but binding is falling apart, so I hope this makes it back across the pond, but um, I need to, get to rebind this, I think. Uh, on, on page 31 of New Seeds, Merton says, for me to be a saint means to be myself. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I am and of discovering my true self. I think a lot of people have misunderstood Thomas Burton and misunderstood Father James Martin when talking about being a saint means to be myself and have taken that to mean that what we don't have to change. We don't have to be converted. We don't have to change our lives or uh, improve on our Christian expression and our own commitments. And that's quite the opposite of what they're both saying. What Merton means is that what God is calling us to be is who God has made us to be. And he famously comes up with this, uh, you know, this binary, which not all binaries are very good. Most, in fact, nearly all of them are bad. But this is useful for us to think about. Where he talks about the true self and the false self. And maybe more accurately, the false selves, right? These in ver you know, various masks that we put on or personae or um, you know, perspectives of ourselves that society has of us or that we have of ourselves or that others place on us. And the point is that we're not authentically living who it is God created us to be. I think oftentimes of uh, Genesis 3. I mentioned it in passing before, uh, before our break. In Genesis 3, most people think of, they think of it as a story about fig leaves and apples and snakes and trees, right? You know, it's the, the Adam and Eve story. And while all those little elements of the story are fascinating, one of the things that's oftentimes overlooked is what is the, what is the actual moral of the story? What is that story about? Is it about the entrance of original sin? Is it about the fact that we lived in this utopic kind of reality where there was no harm, there was no selfishness, there was no sinfulness until Adam and Eve had a little fruit salad? <laughs> and I don't think that's at all the truth of the story. The story is about the persistence of an original, not sin, but temptation. And that temptation is to believe that we are not good enough as we actually are created. That we could be better, we could be more, we could be, as the serpent says, like God. In other words, that original temptation is the is this thought that Adam and Eve had harbored, representing all human beings for that matter, that we're not good enough as we are, we need to be something else. And so that has kind of served, I think, in many, many different ways in the modern era, some people have talked about kind of like commercialization, right? Or we can think about the corporate reality or marketplace in which we find ourselves in this globalized world. And to me, the serpent in Genesis 3 is like the very first advertising executive, right? Think about all the adverts that you see. You know, you're unhappy, you're stressed out, you're miserable, but buy this shampoo. 
and everything will be wonderful. Get this new car, and your life will be great. Buy these new slacks, or this new dress, or you fill in the blanks, right? This watch, or these jewels, or something. You fill in the blank. This thing equals happiness. You can be better. You're not good enough as you are. You're too short. You're too tall. You're too young. You're too old. You're too this. You're too that. You could be something other. And the truth of Genesis 3, you know, when the personified voice of God says to the human beings, who told you you weren't good enough? Who told you you were naked? Who told you you weren't sufficient? That's the challenge that's placed before us. That our false selves are our way of compensating for a, a, a kind of primordial temptation we have to feel like we're not good enough as we are. And so we try to be something else. Thomas Merton gets that. He understood that. To be a saint is to be who God created us to be. Okay, I need to mention Francis of Assisi. I, I know I've talked about him a lot already. It's, what do you expect? I'm a Franciscan. <laughs> Francis of Assisi's famous writing is probably his Canticle of the Creatures. And most people, if they've never read the actual text in translation or the early Umbrian, right? Francis of Assisi is the first poet to write in, uh, in, in kind of vernacular Italian. So Dante can thank Francis of Assisi for getting that ball rolling, right? Most of us have heard the songs, the hymns, all creatures of our God and King, right? To that great German anthem. It's kind of like a march. All creatures of our God and King, two, three, four, right? Strike up the band. Or there's the more contemporary version by um, the American Lutheran composer, Marty Hagen. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Ba, 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 da, 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 da. It's a beautiful song to kind of dance to. It's very cheerful. But the, the problem, I think, with the reduction of the canticle of the creatures to the songs and to the kind of birdbath imagery is that it takes away a profound theological statement that Francis of Assisi is making. And it echoes the Genesis 3 temptation. It echoes this call to be saints that Merton talks about. And what I mean by that is the canticle begins with Francis giving praise to God and says that God, to God all praise is due. And then he says in verse 2, but no human being is worthy to utter your name. It's weird. That doesn't show up in any of the music. And it doesn't show up in the memory of a lot of people, including Franciscans. No human being is worthy to utter your name, period. And then we have, praise be you, my Lord, through Sir Brother Son, who brings us the day. And praise be you, my Lord, through Sister Moon, and Brother Fire, and Sister Water, and our Sister Mother Earth. What's interesting is that in each of those lines, Francis is saying, not thank you, God, for all these things you've given us. You've given us the sun and you've given us the moon. That's a misreading of the canticle. It's a common misreading. But what Francis is actually saying, and this is, again, part of the, what gets lost in translation, is that he's saying praise is given to you through these creatures. That the sun is praising you, Lord. That the moon is praising you, Lord. That our sister Mother Earth is praising you, Lord. And the question is, how? They're not speaking English or Latin or Portuguese or something like that. 
The sun is praising God by doing what it is God created it to do. By giving us, as Francis says, warmth and light, right, and energy. And Mother Earth gives praise to God how? St. Francis says, by providing all of this greenery and life and nourishment for us. Each aspect of God's creation, this family of creation, is singing God's praises already by being its true self. The sun's not trying to be the moon, and the moon's not trying to be water, and the water is not trying to be fire. And it, no, verse 2 says exactly that. Because which creature is trying to be something other than what God created us to be? Humans. So Francis begins the canticle by saying that human beings are not worthy to utter your name because we're not being who it is God created us to be. The sun is uttering God's name by being its authentic self, its true self, being the sun. And likewise, the moon and fire and water and brother wolf and sister deer and so forth. And then we show back up at the end of the canticle. It's added later on when Francis hears about a dispute between the local bishop of Assisi and the local mayor of Assisi. As I always like to say, it's a good thing that religious leaders and political leaders never get into disputes anymore. Now, that was a thing only 800 years ago. No, obviously it happens a lot. And there, Francis adds a line about human beings again. He says, praise be you, my Lord, through those human beings who do what? Who are peacemakers, reconcilers, lovers. What we are created to be, what we are created to do is precisely that. But we're not worthy to utter God's name because we try to be something, anything, other than what God has created us to be. We spend so much energy and effort and time into creating these false selves. And I would argue, in part because we think we're not worthy. That's the irony in all of this. That's the irony of Genesis 3, is that we are worthwhile and lovable and have dignity and value. And God does love us. God loves us into existence. And yet we spend so much time fabricating fig leaves to hide ourselves. To be a saint. Sometimes we tend to be too cataphatic. We want to name God. We want to categorize God. You know, Merton famously says elsewhere in New Seeds of Contemplation that there's no such thing as God because God is not a thing among others. I tell my students all the time, God is incomprehensible, right? That's true. We cannot comprehend God, but that does not mean that God is not unknowable because God chooses to enter relationship with us in creation. And so that's the tricky thing, is we can know God even if we can't comprehend God. God can't be reduced to a concept. I love the German word for concept. Those of you who know German, it's begriff, right? It means the, the root is griff, which is to grab or grasp. And so God is not a begriff. God is ungraspable. I love that. It's just so great. God slips through our fingers, as it were. You know, is it Augustine? What's that? In paradox, right? St. Bonaventure, um, again, a medieval Franciscan theologian, said that, you know, we talk about the coincidence of opposites, right, in God, paradox. So these are all very good points, which, oh, my goodness, our time. No, 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 it's quite all right. This is, this is very much, this is your time, and it's, it's my 
delight to be here and to have this conversation. So we will go in the spirit of belief in the Holy Spirit. We'll go where the Spirit leads us. It's, all, it's quite all right. But let me just highlight a couple things that Merton talks about, building on our reconceptions of holiness and sanctity and what does it mean to talk about the communion of saints? What does it mean to strive to be who it is God created us to be instead of running from it, hiding from it, avoiding it? One of the things he says in his book, No Man is an Island, is that each person has a vocation, which today might seem rather obvious to us, but wasn't back in the 50s when he was writing this, right? Vocation was understood as something reserved for those striving overtly to be holy, nuns and priests and monks, right? They were the ones with vocations. But Merton reminds us, no, 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 each of us has a call. We're all called by God to share in God's life and in God's kingdom. Each one of us is called to a special place in the kingdom. If we find that place, we will be happy. I always, this is, I don't often quibble with Merton except for his gender-exclusive language. You may have picked up on that. I mean, he was a man of his time, and he died in 68. You know, can't rewrite everything he wrote in, in that time. But here's one other instance where I quibble. I don't think we will be happy if we discover this. But I do believe we will be content. We still, in the same spirit of Psalm 46, we will be still and know God. I think happiness is fleeting. Happiness is a good thing. But happiness is not something to aim for because it's, it's, it's a fleeting reality. But contentment, satisfaction, peace, the shalom of God is what we find if we find that place in the kingdom to which God calls us. If we do not find it, we can never be completely content. I don't know why I keep quoting Augustine. I don't know what it is. Um, I don't normally do this, but again, maybe sometimes he's, he gets right to the point where he talks in the opening of his autobiography, Confessions. Right? He says famously, my heart is restless until it rests in you, O Lord. Such a profound truth of that restlessness. If we strive after everything else, that's why it's the false selves, plural, as opposed to the true self, singular, that's known to God alone. That if we don't recognize our call to our particular place in God's community, then we'll be restless. We'll be frenetic. We will never be content. For each one of us, there is only one thing necessary to fulfill our own destiny. Now, he's not talking about individualism. He's talking about our particularity, according to God's will, to be what God wants us to be. I think, I mean, I have so much to say about this. The profound truth of it. It's easy to kind of dismiss a claim like this, like, oh, God desires something for everyone. God knows everybody particularly. But the implications of that truth are, are kind of paradigm shattering. I think about a lot of the cultural issues and contentious points that exist in a lot of our communities, whether here in the UK or in the US, you know, whether it's things about individual rights or people who are in minoritized communities and where their dignity and value takes place. Whether it's about various identities of one's sexuality or one's gender identity, for instance. If we took this seriously, 
maybe we would be less reticent as a society or as a community or as, in, as individuals to project certain expectations onto other people instead of letting them express who it is they understand themselves to be in relationship to our shared creator. It's that idea Simone Weil was talking about. It's not that we're all supposed to be cookie-cutter saints, you know, one size fits all. But a real, we're called to a real appreciation and respect for the particularity of each person's dignity and value and uniqueness called into existence by God. That's part of what this true self means. Um, just to say briefly that the Second Vatican Council, Merton said this, by the way, 10 years before the Second Vatican Council. And that becomes something that is instantiated in the church's teaching on itself as church, that everybody is called to holiness. Everybody. Everybody is called to share in the life of God into the, in the divine life. We've all been given this invitation. So Merton was, per usual, ahead of his time. Right? How do we get there? So I, I wanted to highlight, again, by way of recommendations, I, I'm going to share some passages from this little book. Some of you may be familiar with it, Life and Holiness. Um, and it's, it's an excellent book. It's not one of Merton's more famous ones, but it's a short little one. So if you're looking for something as Ad, Advent is approaching or you know, something just to have to read a little bit. The chapters are, are pretty brief, and, but yet very dense and, and profound. Um, so I want to share a lot. He's talking about, um, about holiness throughout. And, and one of the things he says is, you know, where, how are we oriented toward holiness? Where, where is our grounding? And he says that the way of Christian perfection right, begins with a personal summons addressed to the individual Christian by Christ the Lord through the Holy Spirit. Ah, the Holy Spirit makes an appearance yet again. This summons is a call. It's a vocation. Every Christian, in one way or another, receives this vocation from Christ. It is the call to follow him. It's, it's interesting that Lumen Gentium, right, at the Second Vatican Council says the following. It says that fortified by so many and such powerful means of salvation, all the faithful, whatever their condition or state, are called by the Lord, each in his or her own way, to that perfect holiness whereby God in God's self is perfect. So we see these connections there. Where do we start on a path to holiness? We start with a call, a personal call from God. And I would argue back to before our break this question about baptism and what about the non-baptized? What about people outside of the Christian community? I would say the call from God precedes even baptism. We can look to, again, the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Before you were born, I knew you. And if we start all the way with the notion of creation, how does God love creation into existence? Well, in the Franciscan tradition, we believe in our particularity, in our true self. So one of the things that, and we'll look at this with, with Pope Francis too, because his exhortation highlights a similar sort of theme. Merton addresses what holiness is not. And I think this is really important. He warns us. He says that um, should not, therefore, delude ourselves with easy and infantile conceptions of holiness, which are too often, I, I add here, reduced to hagiographic tales, or no, he says this, pardon me, uh, tales of superhuman heroism. 
we were talking about this earlier about the saints with a capital S. And we see the problem even as we're talking this past weekend with, with Newman and the four other women who were canonized. Our focus too often on miracles or the miraculous can distract us from what real holiness is. Another thing about real holiness is that it's not our individual achievement. Merton's trying to make that very clear, but that's that superhero sort of mentality. Francis of Assisi was not holy because he accomplished something that nobody else could. You know, he is, He's holy because he says yes to the invitation, and he says yes with his whole life to participate in the divine life of God. He shares in God's holiness. That's what we mean when we say he's holy. That invitation's open to all of us, too. Though, back to Dorothy Day, we're too, too quick to put them on pedestals and dismiss our capacity for that shared life in the divine spirit. Oh, I'll just add this, too. You know, he also says in, in, in a similar passage shortly after this, he says, hence, sanctity is not a matter of being less human. Right? What does he mean by that? Sanctity is sometimes viewed as other, like our humanness is what makes us sinful. This goes back to the, the Gnostic notion you raised you know, earlier this morning about do, am I saying that actually we're just kind of entrapped material creatures and we need to escape the material world or a corporeality? Absolutely not. Our humanity is precisely the location, the, the condition of shared, sharing God's holiness. And so he says, it's not a matter of being less human, but more human than other men and women. That's what sanctity is about fully embracing our humanity. It follows, he says, that a pretended way of perfection, his quotes, that simply destroys or frustrates human values precisely because they are human, and in order to set oneself apart from the rest of men and women as an object of wonder, is doomed to be nothing more than a caricature. And such caricaturing of sanctity is indeed a sin against faith in the incarnation. I think he's spot on. If we believe that God became human, fully human, as Christians profess in our creed, then, then to say that our humanity is somehow the stumbling block or what inhibits us from sharing in the divine life is a contradiction, is a rejection of our faith. Either God so loved creation and humanity that God became part of it or God didn't. And so we ha it has implications for how we think of our own lives and our own sense of humanity and holiness. So then what does real holiness look like? He says, the saint then seeks not his or her own glory, but the glory of God. Right? Francis of Assisi, I keep using him as an example, he was holy not because he pointed to himself, but because when everybody looked at him, they saw the what he was pointing to, and that was Christ. That's what a saint is. I'm reminded of Rowan Williams. You've heard of him, right? <laughs> the Archbishop Emeritus and, and fan of Thomas Merton. He, in a small collection of essays about Thomas Merton, I think SPCK published it here in the UK. Fons Vitae published it in the US. But he has a great, little, um, a great little essay that I think also originally appeared in the Merton Journal from the, the Merton Society of Great Britain. That's a, I gotta keep it. You know, not so subliminal messaging to, about the, the Merton Society. Um, it, I think it originally appeared there some years ago, and he basically talks about how 
oh, I wish I could get this exactly right how he puts it, but basically how unoriginal Thomas Merton was and how much he loves Thomas Merton for his unoriginality. And at first glance, it sounds like an insult. You're like, oh, how very dare you? Insulting our dear, beloved Thomas Merton, unoriginal, please. Until you understand what he says, what he means. He goes on to say that Merton was unoriginal because he, everything he did redounded to God. That he, didn't, he wanted to be somebody who encouraged people not to stop with him and his writings and to admire himself, but ultimately to direct others to Christ. And I think he's right about that. That's really what sanctity is about, and that's what Merton says, too. He says, in order that God may be glorified in all things, the saint wishes him or herself to be nothing but a pure instrument of the divine will. It's not about being just a passive rolling over like some kind of puppet for God, but it's about all of what we do giving glory to God. That's that great Jesuit expression, right, for the greater glory of God. The Jesuits are always so good at catchphrases, little bumper sticker lines, you know? Find God in all things. Okay, Ignatius. We've heard that one before. But, but it's true, right? For the greater glory of God. And that the saint wants him or herself to be simply a window through which God's mercy shines on the world. This is where I would say the current bishop of Rome, Pope Francis, is a living saint. Not because he's some kind of miracle worker, not because he has some kind of special powers, but because you see God's mercy shine through him. And in this way, he's a friend of God and a prophet. And are we surprised that there are some people on both sides of the Atlantic who are, who are speaking out against him and trying to defame him and undermine him? That goes with what it means to be a prophet. Remember Jeremiah? I'm sure there are days where his holiness wakes up in the morning and goes, I wish I could just shut my mouth. <laughs> exactly. It's so important. It's so important. Okay, now I'm about to break a cardinal rule of PowerPoint. That's a, tons of text. But it's too, this is too important a passage. This comes from Life and Holiness too, about the particularity of our sanctity, about the uniqueness of our holiness. And this is where Merton kind of debunks, again, this notion of holiness and saints that we've been talking about. He says, the popular idea of a saint is, of course, quite naturally based on the sanctity which is presented for our veneration in heroic, heroic men and women by the church. There's nothing surprising in the fact that the saints quickly become stereotyped in the mind of the average Christian and everyone on reflection. We've talked about this quite a bit already. And on reflection, we'll easily admit that the stereotype tends to be unreal. Dorothy Day again. I don't want to be a saint because I don't want to be so easily dismissed. It's unreal, unrelatable. The conventions of hagiography have usually accentuated the unreality of the picture, and pious art has, in most cases, successfully completed the work. The stories we tell, the reliance on miracles, the way that we, we make our statues and paint our frescoes, it all is of a piece. In this way, the Christian who devotes him or herself to the pursuit of holiness unconsciously tends to reproduce in themselves some features of the popular stereotyped image. Or rather, since it is fortunately difficult to succeed in this enterprise, right, 
We set ourselves up for failure if we try to be another Catherine of Siena or another Mother Teresa or another Francis of Assisi. He or she imagines themselves in some sense obliged to follow the pattern as if it were really a model proposed for their imitation by the church instead of a purely conventional and popular caricature of a mysterious reality, the Christ-likeness of the saints. This goes back to your observation about John's gospel. What does God call us to? To be Christ-like. Not to be another Christ, not to be cookie-cutter Christs, but to be like Christ in wherever we find ourselves, in our circumstances, in our time, in our places today. Pope Francis, and we'll talk about it after lunch, Pope Francis says the same thing. He calls that the middle-class saints or the saints next door. That's beautiful, right? It's not just, I'm aware of the British history and, and of class tensions. It's not just the royal saints or the upper-class saints. It's, it's everybody has this call, and it's the things we do. But we'll get to that. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that some more. Thank you for that. He also acknowledges that there are false forms of holiness. He says, too often our notion of faith is falsified by our emphasis on the, statement of, on the statements about God, which faith believes, and by our forgetfulness of the fact that faith is a communion with God's own light and truth. I think this is, again, really important, that anything that leads us away from recognizing that when we talk about what we are striving for, what we're talking about in terms of holiness, if it's anything other than sharing in the divine life and modeling ourselves after being Christ for in this moment, how God is calling us today, then it's a false form of holiness. Whether it's the heroic in the kind of big picture way, if we think that's what it means to be a saint, or whether it's in the kind of miraculous, magical way, or whether it's in any other sorts of ways. For some people, it's, it's about denying their humanity, denying the reality of the material world. For some people, it's, it's about how many prayers or novenas or daily masses or scripture I read. For some people, it's the fuga mundi, the fleeing of the world, instead of what Christ calls us to, again, in John's Gospel, chapter 15, part of Christ's prayer is, I, said, I don't, keep them from the world, I send them into the world, not that they become of the world, but that they're in the world. That's different than fleeing the world. Our holiness is found in participating in God's life in our context. You know, I, I resist personally. I, I don't think our role in the family of God's creation is to make the world holy. I think that's what the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, is already doing. The problem, again, it's about flipping around our expectations. So often, I think, we view ourselves as God's mediators with the rest of creation and with one another, those of us who are involved in the church and are practicing Christians. Well, we're the ones who have got to go out there and evangelize and proselytize and this kind of thing. And I actually, I think it's the other way around. As Francis of Assisi says, Look at the sun, how it's already praying to God. It's modeling for us the right way to pray. And, and look at you know, these other creatures. When they're in right relationship with God, they're doing what it is God created them to do. We human beings, we're not worthy to utter God's name. We're doing anything but that. And so actually, it's one of these things where maybe instead of us kind of spiritualizing the world, it's about attuning ourselves 
to God's presence in the world already that we're so quick to overlook and to brush by. Does that make sense? And, and I think this re, re kind of renewal of our understanding of holiness as not individual accomplishment, not something we achieve on our own in a heroic way, however we understand it, but participating in God's life because only God is holy, allows, it expands the possibility in all different directions. One doesn't have to be, you know, a cloistered nun to be holy. One doesn't need to be a Christian to be holy. And I would argue, and Britain would agree, and this may be my Franciscan flag waiting here, but I don't think you need to be human to be holy. Part of the Canticle of the Creatures might suggest to us that other creatures, non-human animals, might be holier than us because they're, they're not trying as hard as we are to be something other than what God has created us to be. One little note, and then I realize we're at time, so I'll, I'll wrap up uh, for our next break, is that you are so good, by the way. You've been, Brother Son has been not kind to you this whole time. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but, but in the book of Proverbs, you know, there are all these little pithy sayings that come to us from the, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And there's this great line where God is speaking to humanity, and God calls human beings lazy bones, you know this passage? God says, and you lazy bones, you look at the ants and see how they order their community, how they work together, how they relate, how they're able to accomplish while you just fight and, you know, can't get anything together. I love that, you know. The ants do a better job at politics and community building and maybe worship than we could ever aspire to. And that's not some sort of hippie new age thing. That's from the book of Proverbs. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm looking to Kate to see. I, that's all I have to say for now. Um, after our break, we'll come back to look at uh, Pope Francis and the exhortation. So let's, the, now we're going to move to the, the kind of the last major section um, of what I wanted to present to us for our reflection and discussion today, and that's to take a look at Pope Francis's document from last year, his exhortation on holiness, called Rejoice and Be Glad. Um, it was really a surprise document because most exhortations, apostolic exhortations, are written after there's a synod of bishops, as is usually the standard uh, practice. And so a pope will take the recommendations of a synod of bishops. Like right now in Rome, there's the synod of bishops on the Amazon that's taking place. And at the end of this uh, gathering, three-week gathering, the members of the synod will propose a final document and some reflections. And it's been customary that the pope then kind of write his own summary and sometimes uh, give instruction or teaching. Um, it's happened throughout. This exhortation was not a post-synodal exhortation. It was just a teaching presented to the church, a kind of uh, admonition or an encouragement, a, a challenge for the people of God, independent of any kind of external force. So that in itself is noteworthy. That kind of just appeared. Yeah. There were rumors that he was working on something, but um, for those who haven't seen it yet, it's not a very long document. It's, it's, it's really quite brief. 
Um, and, but it's, it's very, very rich. It's, it's excellent. And so I want to unpack that for us. And I want to begin by talking about the structure, what, what's in the document itself. I'm assuming that not everybody has read it. Maybe some people are just hearing about it for the first time today. And so I would say these, these subheadings are my own, that it's really two parts. There's part one in which Pope Francis addresses the question, what holiness is and what it is not. It's very similar to Merton's own style in New States of Contemplation, right? The first two chapters in here are, are titled, What Contemplation Is and What Contemplation Is Not, right? And so Pope Francis talks about the call to holiness. He identifies two subtle enemies of holiness, which I would suggest is similar to what, Pope, uh, to what Thomas Merton says uh, with regard to false forms of holiness. Then the rest of the document addresses this question, what does it mean to strive toward holiness in the modern world? And at least two of you have mentioned to me comments about this. Okay, so where does this go? What does this mean? Here Pope Francis kind of lays out uh, an, a, a case for what it means to strive for holiness in the modern world and does so in three chapters. Um, the first is in the light of the master. Um, in there, it's really uh, a reflection on the Beatitudes. Pope Francis argues that what does, it mean? what does it look like to be holy as God calls us to participate in the life of holiness? It looks like doing what Jesus says in those eight Beatitudes. The second thing is he talks about signs of holiness in today's world. What does it look like? How do we know? What's kind of the litmus test of whether or not we're embracing and participating in God's holiness, he gives us some clues. And then this interesting chapter, which kind of took me aback, I'll be honest with you, as I was flying over the Atlantic last year and I was reading this thing, I thought, wait a minute, what? What is this? And it's spiritual combat, which is not typically something you would associate with Pope Francis, you know? Um, spiritual combat, vigilance, and discernment. And so here is really sort of a pragmatic invitation or outline or where do we go from here um, and I'll say more about this now because we have 54 minutes who's counting right <laughs> there's no way to go through everything and so what I'd like to present it, it while also encouraging you to read the document on your own is to look at five key themes some of really align well with what we've already been looking at with Thomas Merton's understanding of holiness and what does it mean to be a saint, sanctity, and so forth. And so we're going to go through five themes um, than kind of the five chapters as such. These kind of run throughout the whole document. Okay. The first one is, surprise, surprise, this notion that holiness is a universal call rooted in baptism. So here he's drawing from uh, Gentium, he's drawing from resources very similar to Thomas Merton's, that typically vocation and holiness has been viewed as an exclusive, limited, very narrowly defined category. And instead, everybody who's baptized, you know, again, he's talking really just within the church, but we might go so far as to say that all human beings have this relationship to God and are called to participate in the holiness of the Creator. Here he returns then to that sense that Johnson was talking about at the beginning of our time together. Remember this, this hang-up that we might have with a popular understanding of the communion of saints might be a barrier for us to think about what our true call is. In that regard, Pope Francis really is embracing that 
book of Elizabeth Johnson says that maybe it's better for us to think about being friends of God and prophets. To That's kind of what we mean by sanctity. And he says that we need to move beyond the limited canon of the saints. So he doesn't dismiss that. Obviously he doesn't. Just this past weekend, he added five people to the canon of saints, right? But he's, he's very clear about the fact that that's not the only collection of people that are holy. You don't need two miracles to be considered holy. You don't even need to be known beyond your own local community or family to be holy. That's where he introduces these notions. He uses these phrases, saints next door and middle class saints. I love both of those things. You know, he's talking about when we think about the people who have most inspired us and modeled for us what it means to be authentically Christian women and men. Is it really Francis of Assisi or Mother Teresa of Calcutta? Are they the most influential kind of folks in our quest to follow Christ? Or is it our grandmother or our neighbor or our grade three teacher or a pastor or a friend? Right? In the case of Thomas Burton, going back to my very first slide, is it Bob Lacks? Right? As much as uh, Merton, in that point in, in the 1930s when he was entering into uh, the Catholic Church, he writes a lot about Francis of Assisi. And, and many of you know that he first wanted to be a Franciscan. And so Francis of Assisi was inspirational, but was he more inspirational in shaping his understanding of Christian life than Bob Lacks, his Jewish best friend? He might very well be considered a saint next door. And middle-class saints, you know, this goes back to this notion of hierarchy when we're talking about the misunderstanding of the communion of saints as a patronage system. He reiterates that God extends the invitation to all, but that it's up to us to respond to that call. So just because God calls us doesn't mean that we say yes. We still have that freedom. And then this is really important. We talked about this uh, just a moment ago, too, before lunch. That the vocation to holiness, the call to holiness, to follow Christ and to participate in God's holiness is always particular. Remember Simone Weil said, we need saints without precedent. We need new saints, not the same old saints as it were. You know, somebody mentioned, and I... I me for not remembering who, because I've spoken to so many of you, and all the conversations have been great, but somebody had mentioned, um, you know, this idea of not, not needing another St. Francis of Assisi, and I was reminded of what one of his biographers said that he said near the end of his life to his fellow Franciscan friars, and he said to them, the Lord has shown me what is mine to do. May the Lord show you what is yours. In other words, Francis of Assisi recognized that the people who had come to join his community and way of life were not to just be carbon copies of him. That's not what God called for. God has created each of us to answer this call to holiness in our particular context. So it's going to look different, but it's all equally participating in God's holiness. Whether you're married, whether you're male or female, whether you're a parent, whether you're in religious life, whether you're a believer of this sort or of that sort whether you work in this field or that field, right? whether you're of this age or that age. All of these factors 
um, are to be taken into consideration because there's no generic sense of holiness. And I think that's a message that in the Christian community we oftentimes overlook, we forget, we downplay. Um, and I see that particularly in our churches where we, um, and I say we as a, as a priest in particular, um, where priests and bishops especially and, and other religious and lay ministers start to become the arbiters of who is in and who is out, who is welcome and who is not, who is sufficiently holy or sufficiently able to approach the sacraments, as it's put sometimes, and who is not. And I think what we do is we neglect the fact that God moves in the hearts and in the spirits and in the lives of all people, and it's not for us to determine where God acts. A little bit preachy there, but... This leads to the second point, which is that holiness is a communal mission. There is no such thing as an independent contractor Christian, no sole proprietor Christians, no soloist Christians. Christianity is an orchestral experience. We do this together, right? It's what Paul says when he talks about the body of Christ, and he uses that metaphor quite directly, right? There's the great line in the first letter to the Corinthians. Don't say that I'm an eye, I'm better than you, you're just a foot. <laughs> like, I'm an ear, I'm better than you, you're just an arm. You know? It's silly, but it's also true. Who do we think we are? You may be in this position, you may have that responsibility in the community or in the church. It makes you no better than the next person. One thing I often like to say is that Pope Francis is no more Christian, no more holy than the new, most newly baptized baby somewhere in the world. He's not any more Catholic. You can say the same thing about this, the C of E, right? You know, Justin Wembley, no more holy or Christian than the most newly baptized person in the church. And yet, we don't act that way, even if it is, in fact, what it is we profess to believe. We do this together. We're in this together. Christianity presupposes relationship and community. Um, you can only be Christian in community, right? We're called to support one another in that process, in the mission of living the gospel. It's another reason why Paul, I mean, I keep going back to St. Paul because for a couple reasons. What is, it's it's the, some of the earliest texts we have, obviously, in the New Testament. Um, and he's dealing with the er, some of the earliest communities who are trying to live Christian experience, trying to make sense of the experience of the Christ event, trying to make sense of what it means to be this new community. And it's almost like, you know, both the Pauline letters and the Deutero-Pauline letters, you read these things and you go, man, nobody's ever gotten this right. These early communities, it's no different than the Church of London and the Church of Chicago. I mean, the Church at Ephesus and the Church are as crazy as the next, you know? Those things haven't changed much. And it's, it's telling that, like, when Paul's writing to Rome, for instance, to the Christians in Rome, he has to, and that's one of the last letters he writes in his, his lifetime, and he's reminding them, build one another up. Stop tearing each other down. What is wrong with you? You know, we're in this together. Help one another, support one another. And I think, you know, that's, I think back to the Gospel of John as well. Is that not Jesus' message? 
where he talks about, as I, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, you love one another that way too. Right? It's the agopic love, not the erotic love or the philia love or the, you know, the, the kind of love that is easy and comfortable or selfish. It's the kind of love that is demanding. So help one another with that. And this last point, I think, is so important. Holiness is never, in the Christian community, a zero-sum game of winners and losers. That is, I think, a news item for a lot of religious leaders, especially when you get involved with things like the sacrament police. You know, who can receive communion, who shouldn't? Who can have their children baptized and who can't? You know. Or, we'll get to this in a, in a moment, um, in the next uh, slide, what Pope Francis calls these you know, threats to holiness or these false forms of holiness, where people are holier than thou, right? And they identify certain traits or characteristics, what Thomas Merton might call caricatures or stereotypes of a kind of holiness, and then lord that over others as if, you know, if this person's holy, then you have to be sinful and so forth. The zero-sum game is a real problem. And that, you know, it goes back to a Pokemon grace, right, that created grace. We've got to catch it all, and then we keep it to ourselves. God's grace is the gift of God's self, and if God is infinite, there's no end to it. So why do we act like it's a limited quantity? Okay, false forms of holiness. So Pope Francis talks about um, some ancient heresies and, and suggests that they're, they're still very alive today. The first is he talks about contemporary Gnosticism. So we mentioned Gnosticism a moment ago, actually, talking about you know, Gnosticism is not a, a singular tradition, but rather an umbrella term we can use for a number of kind of Hellenistic traditions. Um, and there were early Christian communities that were deeply Gnostic in their worldview and in their understanding of, of the Christian tradition. Part of what was emphasized was what's in the name itself, gnosis, right? It's Greek for knowledge. So Gnosticism says that there is, how do you attain, we might call holiness, or how do you attain salvation? It's about knowing the right thing. And what is it that you know? The Gnostics believed that there was a kind of secret wisdom, that some people had access to it and others didn't. So they took some of these, you know, in, in the Gospels you have these passages that are very curious, where Jesus sometimes takes his disciples aside and he says, well, now let me talk to you. And people have interpreted that over the centuries as Jesus passed on to some people in the community secret knowledge, the secret wisdom, and they passed it on. And only a few people have access to it. What Pope Francis says is that today, there's still this kind of Gnosticism that creeps up. How do we see it? Well, first, we see it in people who want to reduce faith to propositional claims, to knowledge alone. And so you see this play out. Um, you see this play out in people who are obsessed with memorizing passages from the catechism, for example. Right, and who can quote the catechism to you. But this, but this, but this, and list these things out. Reminds me of the book of James, right? What does James have to say about faith and works and knowledge, right? 
that you could claim to have faith. You could talk about it until you're blue in the face. But, you know, show me, in effect, what that looks like. And he says, I will show you my faith by my works. I think of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says something very similar. Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to be surprised. A lot of you say, Lord, Lord, and yet aren't going to be in the kingdom. In other words, it's not enough to just talk the talk, as the expression goes. We have to walk the walk. And so faith is not easily reducible to what you know. Um, it reminds me of Matthew 25, the famous final judgment scene. You know, what does Jesus say? How does Jesus identify the sheep and the goats? How do they fall into the category? Well, the sheep are the ones who memorized the catechism, who passed all their theology exams, who did very well, right, in pop quizzes and all these kind of engagements. No, that's not it at all, right? Jesus didn't say, well, when did you answer this question about morality? Or when did you answer this question about doctrine? With absolute accuracy or something to that effect. It's about what you did That's the measure by which God measures us. It leads, Pope Francis says, to an elitist worldview in who is the in-crowd and out-crowd, the insiders and outsiders, who is in the church and who isn't. I mentioned this in terms of that sacramental police again. Right? One of the greatest sins that Christians commit is turning the Eucharist into a weapon. And it happens in too many contexts and in all of our churches. And this is a kind of Gnosticism in a way, too. Um, I think it's an increased threat in the digital age, and it's something Pope Francis highlights as well, that we can think, you know, the immediacy of social media and the internet and email, text messaging, we can just say a bunch of stuff and we can become disembodied in a way in our heads. You can see it. Just walk around the street, right? Everyone's walking around like this. I, I do it sometimes, too. I, I'm sorry to admit, I have a talk right here, you know? I'm sure all of you can likewise produce something like this. And so we can reduce the embodied experience of relating to one another, the kind of, yeah, the importance of our relationality and community it could be reduced to what we think and what we say and who is right. And that's a form of contemporary Gnosticism. Into saying that holiness is identified with being right, being correct. Another false form of holiness, Pope Francis says, is Pelagianism. So Pelagius, we've been talking a lot about grace and about Augustine uh, for lunch today. Pelagius was, at least as history tells it, kind of uh, Augustine's arch enemy. Pelagius was a really good guy. And he was British. I think mean, people forget about that. It doesn't, it's a bad, bad rep for the, for the Brits. But he, um, he was a good guy who's, as I, as I tell my students when I teach theological anthropology and we talk about the Pelagian-Augustinian debates and controversy, I have them read some of Pelagius' writings and they go, you know what? This sounds really good to me. And I said, I know, because he's not an idiot. You know, he, he made some really good points about what about human freedom? If God really gave us free will, can't we actually use it? Does it mean something? His fear was that Augustine was saying that because God acts first and we can do nothing without God's grace, that it reduces our free will and therefore reduces God's gift to us. 
Now, that's a fair point. The problem is that Pelagius and his followers, his interpreters, came to believe that it was sufficient the free will that God gave us, it itself, the freedom was sufficient for us to attain our salvation, that we, in effect, didn't need Christ. We could do it ourselves. And that's where he falls into trouble. What is contemporary Pelagianism then? It's really about our self-sufficiency, a self-centeredness that says, I can do this. I don't need Christ. I don't need grace. And I don't need the rest of the community. And boy, don't we know people like this, self-identified Christians who go it alone, who think they're better than others, who don't want to be bothered, right? I don't want to talk, I don't want to talk with, I don't want to watch that television program. I don't want to hear that music. I don't want to see these people because it's somehow going to affect me. I'm going to make the choice to be holy on my own. So how do we see that play out? Well, the first is forgetting our dependence on God and one another. Right away. It it, it manifests itself in a lack of humility. Yes, God gives us free will, but to think that we do it on our own is to say that we don't need God. It is, as Pope Francis says, an obsession with the law, absorption with social and political advantages, uh, uh, punctilious concern for liturgy, doctrine, and prestige. I think about this in the Roman Catholic tradition, particularly the people who are most vocally critical of Pope Francis are people who fit this description pretty well. People, bless you, very concerned about following the rubrics, as it were, instructions for the liturgy. People very concerned about being very clear, in other words, propositional with doctrine or with moral questions, right? Even though the church's highest form of moral teaching relies on the informed conscience, right? Because that presupposes the Holy Spirit. And with prestige. I don't think it's an accident most vocally critical of Pope Francis, who talks about mercy, about care for others, who talks about doing this in community, right? Striving after holiness, living like Christ. The ones most critical are the ones most fancily dressed in their medieval attire and silk outfits. Sorry if that's a bit cynical, but it's also true. I, I think one could be, and that's a very good point, I think one could be Gnostic and not be Pelagian, but I think, if, you know, your, your question's got me thinking. I think if you are this kind of form of contemporary Pelagian, you might be a crypto-gnostic, too. <laughs> you know? I think you're right to say that there's, there's discernible overlap there. I would say that um, when you have a system that's either propositional and that rule base, and then you use that as a form of, of judgment that I can do it myself, it, it leads to the up. And, it's, and it leads to a kind of compartmentalization of one's life. If, if there's a checklist of things that I need to do to be a good Christian, to be a good Catholic, to be a good Anglican, to be a good what it, fill in the blank, then, then I can check that box and the rest of my life doesn't matter. And so the positive temptation, I would say, the positive draw is security, found, an anchor to found oneself in. The negative side is an oversimplification of faith. And I would say you're hard-pressed in the Gospels to find Jesus laying out rules that are very, very clear. He says a lot about love, a lot about forgiveness, and he's very, very critical of hypocrites. But you're not going to find him say, you cannot vote for Labor Party. You cannot vote for Democrats. 
you know, you cannot vote for Republicans, right? Or the, or, you know, you, in order to be a good Christian, you have to be a red Tory, right? There's none of this kind of stuff. Um, and yet, people crave that. I'm thinking there's also one example that comes to mind, and I don't mind naming names we're among friends and whatever. I would say this in other contexts too. There's an American cardinal, Cardinal Burke, who is very, you can Google him on, on, on the internet and you can see him in all of these long silk robes and magna kappas and, and, and this kind of stuff. And he's one of the most vocally critical people of Pope Francis. And, and it's because he, he's a bit of both of these things. He's very concerned about liturgy and prestige and, and a sort of perceived dignity of what it means to be a bishop and a cardinal and a priest and so forth. And he's also very concerned about black and white, going back to this question, you know, very clearly delineated beliefs as opposed to faith. I think it's an important distinction we have to make. Say that again? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the, and that's the parallel again, you know. And, and I keep it deliberately general because Jesus, you know, Pharisees, Sadducees, scholars of the law, chief priests, they're all, they're representing different groups of his own faith community of Judaism. And so it's not like, sometimes we get this wrong perspective as Christians because we hear the Gospels and we're like, oh, Pharisees are bad guys. No, no. It's one particular community of religious leaders. But Jesus did not reserve his criticism just for them. It's for all religious leaders. He says to his own followers, you see civil and religious leaders lord this over others. It will not be the same with you. Right? Especially when you have the brothers you know, who want to be on the left and the right of Jesus. One gospel has their mother put them up to it. <laughs> Sorry, ladies. And the other one, they do it of their own initiative. But Jesus' response to them is what? You know, that, that's not what we're about here. And that's, I think, this notion of Pelagianism. It's about me. It's what I've accomplished. It's a false form of holiness because it mistakes what I do or I seem to accomplish for what is really God's work in my life and in the world. Right? Well, first, I would say we have to convert ourselves because my guess is that each of us struggles with part of this. Maybe not so extreme. We're not Cardinal Burke with the Pelagianism, for instance, or the Gnosticism. But we, each of us, can fall into this temptation. The question over here about security, about clearly knowing. I know, I know. But I think, I think that's, that's what I'm beginning with. It has to begin with us because there needs to be an understanding of the other. You know, because I think there's, notice quickly we fall into Pelagianism in the self-righteousness when we say, oh, you're, you know, even my cynicism, my not-so-veiled cynicism a second ago. You know, I need to check myself and, and, and be sure because they're not bad people. Oftentimes, these false forms of holiness are pursued out of a good intention. And so I think, I, I think if we are rightly disposed, you know, to recognizing holiness is about, you know, these things, that it's a communal thing. We're in this together. We, we're called to build one another up. That, that it's not us who are accomplishing these things, but God who accomplishes it through us and with us and among us. There's humility. There's a different way of approaching those who, who are really enmeshed in this way of thinking. 
But I think, you know, it's really brilliant. I mean, when you look at these two things, how quickly they manifest themselves in the world, we could slip into this Gnosticism when we want to show that we're right and they're wrong when we face folks. And then we're, we're doing the exact same thing from another angle, you know. So it's tricky. It's tricky. It just goes to show that just because we don't, quote unquote, feel the presence of God doesn't mean that God's not already at work within us. And so Augustine would say, she's only able to serve the poor because God, God's grace is operative in her life. I think that's one of those things, too, where we have to be careful is like, just because we don't have this aha, magical sort of like walking, you know, cloud nine, that's how we experience God all the time. No, God is with us even in those moments of doubt and darkness and struggle. And when we do something good, when we are living the gospel, when we are following Christ as authentically as we can, that is God's grace at work within us. The thing about Pelagius is, is right, about Pelagius' understanding with God, except it's not, his, his understanding with God, of God in his writings is not really negative. It's, it's, it's actually too positive. And that's, I don't even mean to say that. That's wrong, too. It's, it's, it's very, very positive. It's all about what he deduces from that. So his claim is, for Augustine, grace is the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit is what animates us. It's what makes possible our knowing, choosing, loving, and doing good. We can't do it without God's grace, without the Holy Spirit. For Pelagius, his understanding of grace is not the Holy Spirit. It's free will which he also says, he's like, he and Augustine are basically on the same page. He's like, yeah, I also believe that grace is a free gift from God, but he doesn't recognize it as the gift of God's self. He recognizes it as God has given us the gift of choosing. And so why wouldn't God, if God gave us free will, why wouldn't God give us the ability to, to choose the good, to know the good on our own? And so it's an overly optimistic view of God and of, of humanity. I'll just say this, and then I want to move on. I, I have to move on. We, we have more time for conversation, so save those thoughts. But, you know, what is a heresy? I think the best definition of a heresy is when somebody gets part of the truth and mistakes it for the whole truth. Pelagius isn't wrong, and he wasn't wrong in tension. He just doesn't have the whole picture, and that's the problem. Right? Brings us to the devil, as, a, as it ought, right? This is... This is something that startled a lot of modern readers because they're like, who talks about the devil anymore? And Pope Francis says that's exactly the problem. And his point isn't to personify the devil. He's not saying that the devil is some red demon-looking creature with pointy tail and horns and everything. He, said, he doesn't describe what the devil is at all except to say that the devil in the Christian tradition is, is more than a myth. It's more than just a logical stand-in for our own human weakness. In other words, one of the things that the tradition of the devil and of Satan in the Christian tradition presents to us is this acknowledgement of lifelong struggle and temptation of sin. That, that Christianity is an ongoing, every day, every moment of every day choice to say yes to God. And, and we face something that's larger than ourselves. It's not just our id, to use Freudian language. It's not just our own inadequacies or socialization. It's all part of it. There's more. And I tell my students all the time, 
you know, when, when talking about the devil or about Satan, you know, they want to say, well, yeah, but it's, it's, you know, there's actually a person, it's a fallen angel. I'm like, the church has never declared that. The church has never de- described what we mean by this. Other than what Pope Francis says, it's more than just a myth. It's not just a horror story or a bedtime story. That there is something that sin is more than the sum of its parts. Right? And it can be helpful at times to think of it in, in personified terms or in other terms. You know, There's no judgment about that here. It's just some people get fixated. I just remember last spring I was teaching a course and students are like, their minds are just exploded because they go, you mean, where did this pitchfork and tails and stuff come from? I said, some of the bats of world literature. <laughs> yeah. what, about, what about depictions of hell? And they're like, what, what does that look like? You know? and, and then they start describing, I'm like, you're just plagiarizing Dante Alighieri. I mean, he made that up. I'm not saying that it couldn't be like that. It's just you're missing the point. The point is the reality of, say, the, of the freedom of saying yes or no to God. And that Pope Francis wants us to be very clear that there is something more than mythological about the reality of Satan or the devil. And we have to take that seriously. Pope Fran- a theme that's throughout this when it comes to holiness is Pope Francis says scripture, 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 scripture. Mm-hmm which is very important because in the Roman and Anglo-Catholic communities, we have not always been so good about scripture, right? The reformers, the evangelical communities love scripture. We somehow have a high church allergy to it, right? So there's a a whole chapter, the longest chapter in the exhortation is about the Beatitudes. And Pope Francis says that's the roadmap. You want to know what it looks like to strive after Christian holiness? Beatitudes. And he says, it's so simple. He says this also in the joy of the gospel, his exhortation on, um, you know, uh, on the joy of the gospel, on, on missionary discipleship from 2013. He says, why do we complicate something that is so simple? In other words, we need to take, take Jesus' word in the gospels at face value. I'll give you an example. Jesus does love your enemies, Period. And, and many of us will go, yeah, no, no, I know that. I know that. I love my enemies, but it doesn't mean I have to like them. Right? So, so, or we add all these footnotes, these qualifications to the gospel. Love your enemies. Okay, footnote one. See Osama bin Laden. See Adolf Hitler. See my sister-in-law. <laughs> you know, you pick, your, you pick non-negotiables, right? Surely, Lord... Jesus, you don't mean this person because of what he did or what she did or what they said. You see how we... And Pope Francis says, we have not allowed the Bible, we have not allowed God's word to shake us out of our complacency, to wake us up, to challenge us. You know, I'll give you a little test. I'm going to begin reading from memory a gospel passage. Pretend we're at church. And we are at church. Of a sword, right? There we go. You look at the rose window. Right there. Somebody stop me when you know what story this gospel is. And the first person who gets it is going to get a thumbs up. 
Okay, I don't have anything to give you. All right. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. There was a father who had two sons. Okay, so we have two thumbs up except they're thumbs down because that's not the passage. It was a trick. It was a trick to prove my point because I said it was a gospel reading from the gospel of Matthew. The story of the prodigal son only appears in Luke's gospel. So you did exactly what I wanted, so thank you. I set a trap and you fell right into it. It was very humble of you. Thank you. Thank you. Why do I, why do I say that though? Why do I do that? And you're not to fall into that trap, then don't worry, mostly everybody else is thinking the same thing. You were just the brave ones to say it. Why do I do that? Because most of us, when we hear Scripture proclaimed, and in, in, in if not people who really read sacred Scripture, our experience of it is mostly in lit- liturgy, right? When we hear the readings, the lessons proclaimed, when we hear the gospel proclaimed, we hear certain clues and we go, oh, I know this one, prodigal son, and then we zone out. And in our mind, do you know the Peanuts by you know, Charles Schultz, the, Charlie Brown? And the teacher goes, wah, 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 wah. I think oftentimes most of us encounter scripture like that, even when we're reading it, but especially when we're hearing it. You hear proclaim, the father had two sons, you go, I know this, prodigal son, younger son, uh, with the pigs, he comes back, the older son, party, blah, blah, blah. And then you hear the gospel of the Lord, and you're like, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, and you sit down. Right? Completely zone out. Because we think we know it so well. And when we think we know the story, we know the protagonist, we know the plot, we know the characters, we don't pay attention and we shut down the Holy Spirit's ability to unsettle us. That's why one of the great gifts of the, of the church in prayer is Lexio Divina, where you slowly reflect on the passages. And it's amazing sometimes the word or phrase that hits you. Pope Francis says sacred scripture is the living word of God. If we let the Holy Spirit touch our hearts, we'll do that over and over and over again. But the problem isn't that the scripture is dead. The problem is that we refuse to hear it. So holiness includes being people of scripture. Finally, he says, as a major thing, holiness is impossible without prayer and action. So prayer and discernment are at the heart of a path toward holiness, but it's not enough just to pray without doing something. You know, we talk about this, you know, the Second Vatican Council, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the document on liturgy, talks about how the celebration, the Sunday celebration of the Eucharist is, is the source and summit of our tradition. Source. It's the place from which we go. Summit. It's the place to which we return. It's the in-between times where the action takes place. If that prayer, if that Eucharistic celebration doesn't lead us to something, then what good is it? We're back to the letter of James. You know, you can say you have faith, but show me your works. If you say they're disconnected, then what what good is your faith? And so then he he gives us a list as well, and these I just want to highlight. you know, evaluative tools, uh, an examination of conscience for what, you know, what are signs of holiness, what are characteristics of holiness today. He says perseverance, patience, meekness, again, comes right out of the Beatitudes. Perseverance, it's, we stick with it even when we fail. Patience, that is by far one of the hardest virtues, at least for me. I'm a very impatient person. 
meekness, right? It's not passivity. It's not subjecting oneself to abuse. It's about how does one go about being in the world and relating to others. And in our own time, I think this is historic, more a challenge for men because of the way that society is structured, the effects of patriarchy, the, sex, the uh, effects of how the different sexes are treated and, and viewed. But, uh, but it's true, I think, increasingly for men and women in a very competitive, very commercialized world in a globalized context that it's about dominating and winning and you know, being in first place and these kind of things, Christ calls us to a different way of being in the world. That's what we mean by meekness. Pope Francis says joy and sense of humor. You know, I think a lot of people think holiness is about being this dour person. Oh, you've always got your rosary in your hand and you're very, very serious all the time and you can't laugh or make jokes. Jesus was cracking jokes all the time. The gospel is pretty funny. But again, we were zoned out. We're not paying attention to it. Remember the book of Proverbs? Remember, you lazy bones, humans, look at the ants. It's hilarious, right? What's that? Yeah, oh, exactly. What, example after example after example. And the, tr- the same is true about sanctity. That, that you know, Pope Francis talks about evangelization being primarily about attraction. He doesn't mean like beauty contests. It means if you're living the gospel and you're Christ-like, people will be drawn to you. Look at him. How is it that Christians, non-Christians, and others, you know, again, there's a very small minority of people who are critical, but there were some, there's a small minority of people who are critical of Jesus, too, right? People who are drawn to them. You know, they're fascinated by him because they see the authenticity. They see that he's serious. He's, they see the joy. They see he can have a sense of humor. It means taking the gospel seriously, but not taking yourself too seriously. How is he managed to be elected at all as Bishop of Rome? I, Holy Spirit. Remember that? <laughs> Same thing happened 60 years ago. When John the 23rd was elected, they thought he was going to be an old placeholder. And the first thing he does is call an ecumenical council. About a third or something, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> They're not very happy people. I was just in Rome three weeks ago, and I was sitting in, you know, there's the two curial offices that are right, you know, where the, the Bernini columns come around, and there are two big buildings, and they're like gift shops and stuff on the first floor, but their other floors are all official offices of the, of the Curia. And I was there right about 3 o'clock, so siesta was over. And one, and I was just sitting, out, just sitting outside. You know, just, I had just gone to room, so I had jet lag. I was trying to stay awake. So I was just people watching in the piazza. And one after one, these very dour clerics, you know, they had the Roman calendars on, come back from this. Everyone's like, <laughs> so miserable. And so I, don't, I shouldn't make a blanket statement. It was just my, the people I saw, and it was about two dozen very unamused-looking priests. So, okay. Boldness and passion. You know, do you stand by what you believe? Are you convicted by it? Do you have passion? Right? Passion, are you willing to suffer for it? Passio, to suffer, right? Community life, we've talked about that already, and he says constant prayer. Prayer is not something where we just segregate our time and kind of, the way I think about it sometimes is the divine phone line, right? 
I think a lot of people think that prayer is something that we initiate. So usually is like picking up a phone, right? Name the Father, Son, Oh, <laughs> you know. It's like when we make the sign of the cross or we decide we're going to start praying, that's when all of a sudden the line opens to God. As if God weren't always already present to us, aware of what's going on, knowing our hearts, right? And so this fact is that we're always, in a sense, we should strive to be constantly praying. Prayer is communication with God. And so if God's always near us and with us, there's never a time where we're not communicating with God. Therefore, there's never a time we're not praying. The question is, what kind of prayer? Are we praying? It's like Wizard of Oz, you know, the question when the house falls on the witch, is it a good witch or a bad witch? Is it good prayer or bad prayer? Right? What are we communicating to God? Okay, let's wrap this up. To be the saints we are. Now, I always use this picture deliberately because I think when people talk about the church, they think of guys that look like this. Right? This is a mitre, by the way. I'm not talking about the mitre's fitting. And I think there's a temptation and reasonable incredulity in, in our societies about any claim to holiness in the church today. We are still coming to terms with the deeply, deeply malicious and egregious instances of clergy abuse and, and even more egregious that's cover-up. We see things like treatment and quality of women in the church. Um, when we see... Um, as the Amazon Synod has very, I think, accurately, if only a couple centuries behind, acknowledged colonialism and the use of indigenous peoples and other things that the church has been complicit in. You know, um, Slavery, for instance. This is something your nation and mine know all too well. right? And so there, there are these things where it's like, well, the church has been involved all the way. How do we talk about holiness? And I think, first and foremost, we have to realize that we are not talking about just a top-down approach. This brings us back to holiness is something that we're all called to, including old men in pointy hats, right? They're by definition old. I'm not just trying to poke fun at them, right? You don't see a lot of young guys wearing pointy hats. But all of us, by virtue of baptism, we're all called to be saints. How do we do that? Well, turning back, this is to, uh, to the exhortation. The important thing is that each believer discern his or her own path, Pope Francis says, that they bring out the very best in themselves, the most personal gifts that God has placed in their hearts, rather than hopelessly trying to imitate something not meant for them. In a sense, he's just echoing what we saw before lunch from Thomas Merton. Remember Thomas Merton talked about those false forms of holiness, right? The stereotypes, the caricatures of the saints. Again, to talk about this passage, Merton reminds us to be a saint is to be who it is God has created us to be. A saint is to be ourself. Merton also says, you know, what does it mean to find who we are? The secret of my identity is hidden in the love and mercy of God. Therefore, I cannot hope to find myself anywhere except in God. You know, he says at various points in his writings that our discovery of God is like God's discovery of us, that we can only come to know who we really are in our quest for God. If you don't have an open, seeking relationship with God, you're never going to know your true self. Because the only one who knows us completely 
is the one who loved us into existence. And, the, and it, to me, it's very hope-filled. It's very empowering because even when we don't know who we are, even when we struggle with the false self or false selves, God still knows who we really are. So for Merton, again, we come to discover who we are in discovering God. Which brings us back to these guys. The question is for us, as it was for Merton, in, in, the, question, in the challenge of Bob Lacks, do we want to be saints? Do we actually want to participate in God's invitation of the divine life and holiness? Or do we find other alternatives more comfortable or satisfying or appealing, like contemporary Gnosticism or contemporary Pelagians or nothing Rather, avoid the question altogether. Karl Rahner says that, too. He talks about how, you know, everybody, by virtue of being human, has a capacity for God. In an intrinsic relationship with the creator. But we can choose to ignore it. We can choose to kind of just write it off. Hold it. We're going we're gonna to get there. Right. No more questions. A statement. Yeah. So let me just say this. It's about that particularity, and I want to close with um, a passage from Oscar Romero, now Saint Oscar Romero. So the question is this. What does becoming a friend of God and a prophet, becoming the saints that we already are, what does it look like? And I think this prayer from, it's actually, I treat it like a prayer, but it's part of a homily that Oscar Romero gave near the end of his admittedly short life. And he said, how beautiful will be the day when all the baptized understand that their work, their job, is a priestly work. That just as I celebrate mass at this altar, so each carpenter celebrates a kind of mass at his workbench. And each metal worker, each professional, each doctor with the scalpel, the market woman with her stand, each is performing a priestly office. How many cab drivers I know Listen to this message on the radio there in your cabs. You are a priest at the wheel, my friend. If you work with honesty, consecrating that taxi of yours to God, bearing a message of peace and love to the passengers who ride in your cab. And to me, I think that's the takeaway. That God is calling us not to a singular, one-size-fits-all stereotype or caricature of sanctity, of personal perfection and, or holiness, but in response to God's invitation to participate in the holiness of the divine, through the grace, through the gift of God's self to us already, wherever we find ourselves, as taxi drivers, as parents, as partners or spouses, as ministers, as teachers, as whatever. And so that's where I leave us today. And let's take a break before we have a conversation. <laughs> <laughs>